I'm Afshin Ratansi, and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from the UAE. So has so-called genocide Joe launched explicit war on energy superpower Iran? This after Gaza resistance forces killed occupying American troops accused of aiding ISIS in the Middle East. And what of the USA's reputation, its so-called soft power, now that the USA backs plausible genocide, the term the World Court uses for the UK-US-EU nation-armed-backed mass killing of tens of thousands of Palestinians, mostly women and children in Gaza. Carter and Clinton official Professor Joseph Nye, former dean of the Harvard Kennedy School, is credited with inventing the term soft power. His latest book, A Life in the American Century, is like a who's who of global security power as he charts his rise to become chair of the USA's National Security Council and assistant secretary at the Pentagon. He joins me now from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thank you so much, Professor Nye, for uh, uh, coming on. Before we get to the book, I suppose uh, I'd better ask very briefly about uh, uh, who you think would win a war with Iran, given that's the debate uh, right around the world, and obviously especially here in the Middle East? Well, it depends what one means by winning a war. Um, I think you'd find broad losses on both sides, but uh, American power versus Iranian power in a simple term, uh, it's not a question, but who will pay what costs is a more difficult puzzle to figure out. And people are certainly looking to the Biden administration to understand that cost, clearly. You, uh, you helped expand the Harvard Kennedy School, uh, clearly, from this book. You show how hard you worked on that. But is, and I have to say, some of the donors are uh, associated with APAC and Israel, is Israel's soft power gone? Now these pictures are beaming all around the world, let alone the U.S.'s soft power, given that the entire international community is watching as uh, NATO powers back an arm to the teeth uh, this alleged genocide? Well, I wouldn't say it's gone, uh, but it has been dented or damaged. Um, I think one of the dangers is, um, uh, as Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin put it, uh, you can win a battle and lose a war. Um, in other words, in terms of tactical successes, uh, the Israelis have demonstrated that they have a good deal of capability. But in terms of soft power and the uh, ability to attract others, I think the disproportionate number of casualties in Gaza has indeed damaged their soft power. And Washington's soft uh, power in recent years, let alone uh, Gaza? Well, in, it, 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 again, I, I think the American soft power has been damaged by the uh, uh, disproportionate uh, killing of civilians in the Gaza war. Uh, uh, Biden has pleaded for the Israelis to take a more measured approach, but uh, uh, they're still damaged to American soft power. On the other hand, if you look at uh, American soft power over the years, it, it goes up and down. I mean, soft power is the ability to get what you want through attraction rather than uh, coercion or payment. And uh, there are times in the past where American soft power has been very badly damaged. For example, in the 1960s, uh, there were protests around the world against the Vietnam War. But by the 1980s, the American position had recovered. Uh, similarly, I think you see American soft power damaged 
after the Iraq invasion. Uh, but then when Obama's elected, it recovers. It's damaged again by Trump, uh, recovers somewhat with Biden. Uh, so the and this can be ascertained by looking at public opinion polls. Um, the Pew well, Trump, Trust, Trump is uh, Trump's leading in those opinion polls right now. It looks like oh, no, no, I, I, yeah, no, I, that's a question of will he come back, and if he does, that would have a severe negative effect on American soft power. But I meant if you if you look at public opinion polls that a company like Pew has done asking people in, I think, 27 different countries uh, whether they found America or China more attractive. Uh, basically, the Americans come out ahead, I think, in, in uh, 25 of the 27 countries. Uh, so American soft power goes up and down. It can be dented. On the other hand, uh, in comparative terms, it's still relatively strong. Yeah, paradoxically, that same Pew poll also said the United States was a big uh, threat. They saw the U.S. as a threat, I understand. I mean, you wrote in 2015 that book, Global Futures is the American Century Over, and you were quite sanguine. You were looking at the idea that actually you look at history and you see people far too prematurely predict the end of American, uh, oh, sorry, any empire, whether it be British or uh, any, any other. You don't think you're going to have to revise that after... Ukraine? Not after Ukraine. I think I'd revise it if Trump is elected in um, uh, November. I think he will do severe damage to uh, American power. But remember that a, a lot of a country's uh, soft power, its attractiveness, comes from its civil society, not just from its government. Uh, government does broadcasting and it has policies and those can affect its attractiveness. But um, if a country has an, a vibrant civil society that attracts others, it's better able to recover. I, I think back to... Um, you mean art, the, Hollywood and science? Art, Hollywood and science, but also things like the civil rights movement in... Um, in the 60s, uh, people were marching in the streets around the world to protest American government policy in Vietnam, but they weren't singing the Communist Internationale. They were singing Martin Luther King's We Shall Ever Come, which was an anthem from American civil society. So I think in, the, in that sense of asking, is there resilience uh, in terms of ability to recover uh, I think there's still a good deal of resilience in American civil society. Maybe because his Vietnam speech wasn't broadcast as widely as the I Have a Dream speech. Who knows? But back to this new book. You knew Stanley Johnson. He was a regular on this uh, program at o Oxford. And you say in the book you were shocked his son became prime minister. What do you make of evidence that suggests he was sent to destroy a negotiated Ukraine peace made in Turkey? I, I just don't have any evidence or... I, the answer is I don't know. <laughs> I shouldn't speculate when I'm when I'm really ignorant. Yeah, but I mean, having said that, in the actual book, when it comes to uh, Ukraine, and I mention this because clearly U.S. sanctions have had, uh, well, they've had the opposite effect. They've uh, worsened the economies of Western Europe. Uh, the uh, global South is uh, clearly ignoring uh, NATO, Western Europe and the United States' views on uh, on what happened in Ukraine. But in your book, 
page 345, I think you say, at a meeting at the Kennedy School in 2014, economist Igor Jurgens warned Putin was disillusioned by the West. Well, that was the 2014 Maidan coup, wasn't it, when we had Victoria Newland and the leaked phone call saying she was picking out who was going to run, uh, run the country. I'm just surprised about how you cover Ukraine in this latest volume. You said, three, four, page 347, Putin had agreed to a ceasefire of sorts, named the Minsk process, but it was not clear whether it would be worth much, as we found in 2022. You know, that, that Minsk process is unanimously adopted as UN Security Council Resolution 2202. But it didn't prevent the uh, Russians from invading Ukraine and uh, trying to essentially take over the country. If people say this is a result of the Americans expanding NATO or not uh, conciliating Putin adequately, uh, it's important to read what Putin read, wrote about Ukraine in uh, before he invaded in 2021. Uh, he basically doesn't accept Ukraine as a legitimate independent state. Uh, he talks about Ruski Mir, the Russian world in Ukraine uh, is a part of that and he will control it. Um, I, it so in that sense, uh, whatever the merits and demerits of uh, 2014 uh, and the Russian invasion of the Donbass and Crimea then, uh, I think it had more roots in what was going on in Kyiv and the efforts to uh, of, of a popular demonstration to get rid of a, uh, a repressive uh, uh, government than it did with, uh, with Russia, but Russia saw it as a threat and invaded. And then it, the Minsk process suggested that there could be a point of stability of Russia taking what it already had, but in uh, February of 22, uh, Putin decided he wanted more, and he invaded. You and see, that's I, I, I'm the... going to just interrupt there. That's not really the case, is it? You have a picture of yourself with uh, well, I... Angela Merkel. You have a picture with Angela Merkel in the new book, don't you? And you know what Angela Merkel said. Yes. She but... said that the Minsk process was a delaying tactic, so NATO could arm Ukraine. This was about NATO expansionism. And I mean, on the Putin point about the well, greater Ukraine, that's hotly debated as to whether that's Putin decrying these deals. No, I think if you uh, look back, you'll see that there was a pretty broad consensus in, in NATO countries that Ukraine was not about to be accepted into NATO in 2000. And uh, uh, eight, there was a question of Ukraine joining NATO. I think that was uh, the other European countries like Britain, France, and others were not uh, would not have allowed that. Uh, and I think the, the, the Putin's invasion uh, was a threat to a sovereign country. Then the countries of the so-called global South ought to realize that the UN Charter which protects countries against the kind of invasion that Russia had is in their interest. I mean, to see this simply as a European conflict is a grave mistake. The Kenyan delegation to the United States got this right quite soon afterwards. So they said, this is a problem for all of us. 
by population, that General Assembly resolution, of course, uh, didn't get a majority, as uh, those who favored Russia's view on these things uh, said. Uh, immediately afterwards, there were sanctions on Russian composers in New York, ballet stars, Russian literature in uh, Western Europe. You think they read your work on soft power and took it too far with the, uh, with the bizarre uh, process of banning all things Russian in NATO countries? Well, I think the idea of going on with business as usual with Russia after Russia violated one of the basic norms of the international system, that you don't take your neighbor's territory by force, uh, was an appropriate way of sig signaling that this behavior was unacceptable. Um, I think if you'll look at the details, you'll see that some Russian artists and uh, uh, composers and so forth who uh, were willing to distance themselves from... Uh, I meant Tchaikovsky the, and Pushkin and Dostoevsky. <laughs> no, no, I'm talking about contemporaries. That, uh, so there were some artists who said, we don't support that, and they were uh, continued to be in the repertoire. But, uh, I mean, you seem to be acting as though, or asking questions as though Putin is not guilty of a basic violation of a critical norm since 1945. And I think you're just wrong. Professor Joseph Nile, stop you there. More from the former dean of the Harvard Kennedy School and author of the new book, A Life in the American Century, after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with Professor Joseph Nye, former dean of the Harvard Kennedy School and author of the new book, A Life in the American Century. Professor Nye, we ended part one talking about the norms established after 1945. Of course, the Russians would say, and I think they are, have been saying at the World Court that they were trying to protect Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine. But on the broader point, and even if Russia was in the wrong, two wrongs wouldn't make a right, your book is full, your new book, of, uh, of, of in the sidelines, violations of those norms since 1945, aren't they? I mean, clearly, uh, all the wars, I mean, you go all the way back to Vietnam, but there's so many violations of any kind of norm that any, uh, any uh, non-aligned country would recognize as being in the UN Charter, wouldn't it? Right now, the United States is backing uh, the uh, alleged genocide in Gaza, and Israel certainly isn't uh, acting in any uh, norm established after 1945, and is indeed in violation, of course, of so many resolutions. Indeed, there have been violations, but notice that in a book like mine, A Life in the American Century, published in the United States, I am able to criticize American violations, such as the invasion of Iraq. In Russia, I couldn't do that. And uh, indeed, there have been uh, cases of the fact that um, journalists in NATO countries are not able to report, and journalists are allowed from Western media into Russia. But you actually, speaking about freedom, you speak, uh, you don't mention Julian Assange, you mention Edward Snowden in uh, your book. Were you shocked by the revelations that Angela Merkel, as I said, a picture of you and her in the new book, that uh, the national security apparatus in your country was bugging the chancellor of Europe's most powerful economy? 
Well, I think that was a mistake, and I think it's pretty widely recognized now. But it has nothing to do with my greeting Angela Merkel at a Harvard commencement ceremony. But you were surprised that that was going on? Yes. Yeah, I thought the, I thought the, the, the uh, people in the NSA would have had more sense than to do that. Because it is surprising, given you invented the term soft power, you're credited with that. You don't mention Julian Assange, who, of course, there's a case coming up at the end of February now, and he, he exposed so many details of, as you would put it, violations of any norm since 1945. And, uh, and all that information is there on the Internet for the whole global South to watch. It has huge soft power, like the famous video of the journalist being gunned down in Iraq. Well, I, I mean, I don't mention Julian Assange. There are many others I don't mention uh, on both sides of many issues. Uh, the uh, editor uh, took out a lot of material from the book and wanted to keep it short. So I think, you know, the question of Julian Assange not being in the index is kind of irrelevant. I only just mention it because you mentioned freedom and the freedom to expose war crimes in in, uh, in his case. Uh, Stoltenberg said the other day that uh, that if more money wasn't given to Zelensky, the NATO couldn't deter China. What, what do you think he meant by that, especially in the light of uh, work you've done, which uh, doesn't seem to show any desire by China, and you met many of their officials over decades, to invade Western Europe? Well, it, it, uh... President Xi Jinping has said that he would like the People's Liberation Army to be able to recapture Taiwan, which they regard as a renegade province, by 2027. And many people feared that uh, China would indeed try to use force to uh, unify Taiwan with China. And um, after the uh, failure of Putin's invasion in Ukraine, uh, many people in China uh, and in the region, the East Asian region, said this shows that the type of invasion that people are fearing on Taiwan would be too risky, too expensive. If Putin failed with the land-based invasion, uh, uh, essentially right next door, um, trying to go 100 miles over the sea with a sea-based uh, invasion is a much higher risk. And if Xi Jinping cares more than anything else about his control of the Communist Party and the Communist Party's control of China, um, a failed invasion of Taiwan is the biggest risk he could take face. Uh, so I think that's the type of thinking. That's, I don't know what Stoltenberg had in mind, but that's the kind of thinking people say that the what happens in Ukraine also has an effect on uh, what risks are taken in East Asia. I want to go back to China, but you mentioned failure. Uh, Russia clearly says it hasn't failed. It has killed loads of Nazis and so on. And I mean, this is the Financial Times this week. IMF doubles Russia's growth outlook as Ukraine war stimulates economy. Output in Russia to rise. Impact of Western sanctions in doubt. Banks post record profits. So, from Russia's perspective, they've strengthened the BRICS and Shanghai Cooperation Organization 
strengthened ties with China and the Global South countries, and their economy is booming while Western Europe is declining. How is Russia losing? Well, I think if, if you look at uh, sanctions, uh, they have a, a, a different effect on different periods in terms of time. The immediate effect of sanctions after the invasion were a drop in the value of uh, Russian stocks and of the ruble and so forth. Uh, and then you have the, the sanctions have the effect of what you might call an infant industry tariff. Uh, they lead to production at home of the goods that are deprived from abroad. And I think Russia benefited from that in the what you might call the medium term, as well as uh, it, its exports of oil, uh, which remained in demand. And then the uh, question for Russia and for others is what happens over the long run? In the intermediate run, uh, it, it's true that uh, Russia has had certain benefits from the infant industry tariff effects. In the long run, they're depriving themselves from sources of technology in uh, Europe, which are going to be essential for their accomplishing what they need to do, which was join the fourth industrial revolution. If you look at Russia today, it's two thirds of its exports are in oil and gas, and it has not made the kinds of uh, innovations that are needed to really uh, join the information revolution. Question I think the Russians have to ask themselves is if they stay isolated from uh, Europe and America, are they going to have a, a, as good a technological future? You can say, well, they'll get that from China, but then they're in the path of becoming a, a, a satellite of China. My understanding is, yeah, the scholarly papers are now being published increasingly in, in uh, BRICS countries over Western Europe. And as I said, Western Europe economically seems uh, widely seen to be in, in decline. You do say in the book that uh, it was wrong of uh, Obama to put a red line on chemical weapons in Syria. But now we have so much more information about whether Assad actually used chemical weapons. Why in your book are you saying absolutely he did use chemical weapons when that account has been uh, debunked uh, by so many, including the OPCW whistleblower? Chemical weapons inspection, indeed, there's not a debunking, but there's evidence that Assad did indeed use chemical weapons. So I don't know what you're talking about. So you haven't heard any of the evidence? I mean, there, there's so much being written at this moment, and you say... Definitely, the biggest problem was Syria, where Bashar Assad had used chemical weapons. When, when that—that's uh, not. Uh... I think the preponderance. You can find a lot of arguments on the internet about anything, but the preponderance of evidence from reliable sources is that Assad did indeed use chemical weapons. And if you don't believe that, what's the matter with the sources of information that you're getting? Yeah, I look at all all the different sources, uh, not just sources that are, uh, say, NATO nation publications. You say the presidential briefing that's given to Joe Biden every day, you, uh, you talk about how a lot of it could just be in the, uh, in the mainstream, in the New York Times or something that's given to the president, and how uh, important uh, information uh, is in the public realm 
And there's not that much extra in the intel, you suggest, in the book. Well, to give you an example, uh, what's called open source in intelligence, meaning what's uh, in the press, what's on the internet and so forth, uh, is a very important part of what should be in a briefing, uh, not just secrets. And uh, in an in information age, open source is becoming more and more important. And in that open source intelligence, as well as secret intelligence, there's evidence by the International Chemical Weapons Association, which a uh, unit that comes under the United Nations, that Assad used chemical weapons. Yeah, actually, I meant um, the OPCW whistleblower that has come forward uh, since then. But what about the dangers of a feedback loop then? If things are being leaked to journalists in so-called mainstream newspapers, then that's being fed back to President Biden. There's just a feedback loop being created that... Uh, doesn't allow other pieces of information to come in, like, say, uh, Zelensky has no hope of this counteroffensive, or Assad will stay in power despite American uh, bombing of uh, Damascus. Well, good intelligence presents alternatives, and the alternatives can to the president, and the alternatives should essentially ask what's in the open source, what's in the uh, secret sources, and how do you weigh them uh, in terms of the probabilities of the alternative explanations and scenarios? Uh, and in that sense, the open source helps you with meeting the, the mainstream press, helps you uh, check against some of the things that are in your secret sources. But not if, uh, if and I know you quote uh, Chomsky in uh, your 2015 book, if, uh, if Chomsky's idea about manufacturing consent uh, holds true. Just finally, if Trump uh, gets in, which he looks set to get in, whether it's from jail or, or whatever, he's certainly uh, riding high in the opinion. The American people want him to be president, according to opinion polls. Uh, do you expect him to end NATO? And what does that mean for the United States? Well, first, I think it's not at all clear that Trump is going to get in. The polls that one sees at this time are, to some extent, not a good indication of the outcomes in November. Most people don't really pay attention to elections until after Labor Day, which is in September. So I don't, I don't think that uh, uh, some of these early polls uh, are accurate in terms of assessing whether Trump or Biden will win in in uh, November. I don't think that Trump is going to come back. But uh, if I'm wrong and Trump does come back, I think it will have a negative effect on American alliances and American soft power. And that might include um, the weakening of NATO. Um, the Senate has passed a resolution saying that Trump or any president cannot um, uh, withdraw from NATO without uh, consent of the Senate. But he could simply refuse to uh, uh, to spend money, um, which within, is within his prerogative. And that, of course, would have uh, uh, severe damage. Professor Nye, thank you. Thank you.
And that's it for the show. Our continued condolences to those surviving the killing in Gaza. The new book, A Life in the American Century, is out now. We'll be back on Monday with a former leading contender to be president of Ecuador, now supporting Israel and sending weapons to Zelensky in Ukraine after betraying Julian Assange's political asylum. Until then, keep in touch via all our social media if it's not censored in your country and head to our channel, Going Underground TV, on Rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you Monday.